to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. All right, well, as you know, we've been studying through the book of Luke. And um, if, if you are kind of newer on Sunday nights, the way it works is, is uh, Pastor Brady, the senior pastor here at New Life Church, he, uh, he picks which portion of the text we're going to focus on each week, and then we follow, follow suit on Sunday evenings. I like to think of it as our uh, living lectionary, you know, set for us. And so I, I don't get to choose uh, the text each week, which sometimes is really challenging. I think you'll remember a few weeks ago we had... The verses in Luke that we talked about the signs of the end times and all this stuff. So uh, this week, however, is one of those texts that you'd have to work really hard to mess up. It's the story of the prodigal son. So we can say, oh, we could read this, think about it, and, and go home, but we're going to do more than that. Um, Luke 15 is um, uh, a famous passage, I think, for many of us probably as, as soon as we came to Christ, maybe even before we did, we began hearing uh, this story or references to this story. And so uh, let's just dive right into the text. And so if you have your Bibles with you, come and look at um, Luke 15 with me. As, we, as you're turning there, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting thing for us to think about what it's like to leave home, to actually uh, leave your parents' house. Because for us, that's pretty common. It's sort of an expected thing. In fact, if you don't leave home Past a certain age, parents are kind of, you know, dropping hints like, hey, uh, you ready to go out into the world and, you know, find a, a way for yourself? But this isn't always the way it used to be. Now, I left home uh, at 17, right before I turned 18, and uh, I, I got on a plane, left Malaysia, and flew, you know, halfway across the world to go to college in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's kind of a big change. Uh, we had lived in the States, you know, we had lived in the States uh, three years prior to that, or when I was 10 years old, 10 to 13, and then we moved back to Malaysia, and I finished out my high school years in Malaysia. And, um, and, and this, the, the, you would think I would have been more terrified than I was, but I just sort of thought, you know, this is kind of what you do. You're 17, you're 18, it's time to go off to school. Most of my friends went to college um, out of country. So they, they either went to the UK, or they went to Australia, or and a handful of them went to the US. And so I think when I think about our own kids now, and I think about, would I really send one of our kids on an airplane at 17 and say, God bless, you know, all the best, you know, uh, off you go to go study in Germany or something, you know, I, I don't know that I would uh, feel okay with that, and, and I know my parents were, were uh, trying to be brave, and so, you know, they, they, it wasn't uh, this extremely emotional farewell, but um, even that, I'm thinking through different stories. Okay, wh- wh- what are situations, what are times in my life that I've left home? I was reminded earlier this week because someone uh, was telling me that when they were a child, they used to run away from home. And I thought, you know, I kind of did that too, except that I just ran like two houses down the street. And uh, it was one of those things. I mean, I don't know how old I was, six or seven or eight or nine. I don't know what it was, but it was when my cousins would get to get, come over and then we'd play and all this stuff, and I'd feel a little left out, whatever the case may be, and so I think, well, I'll just run away from home, you know, uh, only it wasn't very brave in that, so I'd just go down to the neighbor's house, and, but I would wait, hey, is anyone going to come find me? Now, that, I know already half of you are psychoanalyzing me because of that story, but uh, that's okay, you know, there you go, think about that, what, you can tell me what you think that means, but, um, 
But probably all of us have different uh, images of that. What does it mean to leave home? Uh, is it a happy time? Uh, is it a fearful time? Is it a, uh, is it a rebellious move? Is it just part of uh, maturing? What does leaving home uh, re- recall for you in terms of emotions? Uh, for this story in this context, the son leaves home uh, under very different circumstances than the one that I left home in uh, under at 17. I mean, I left as sort of this next step. Many of us, you, you left to go to college, you know, uh, out of the next step. And this guy is trying to reach for some sort of independence, but in a very different sort of way. Verse 11 is where the story begins. Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And then the father divided his estate between them, and soon afterward... The younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. Now, to say to your father in those days, to say, hey, look, I I want my inheritance now while you're still alive, is is tantamount to saying, I wish you were dead. Um, That your only value to me is the thing that you're going to hand uh, hand over to me when you die. And so to kind of say, to demand an inheritance now while the father is still alive Uh, is a great insult. It's a great uh, shameful sort of thing to do, to say, look, I don't don't really have any sort of honor for you other than what you're worth to me, what you're going to hand down to me, so why don't you just give it to me now? But the other thing that's interesting about this is his inheritance likely would have been in land. And so for this son to have cash, to have money, so to speak, to spend or to waste in a faraway land, meant that, it's very likely that, He took his portion of the land and cashed it in, sold it, so that someone else potentially was living on his family's land. Now imagine that for a minute. My wife's family lives farms a farm in northwest Iowa that was passed down from her grandfather, and it was his farm. Part of it was his land that he first bought when he moved over from Indiana, and you know, paid a dime for the train ride or whatever this, however the story goes, you know. Uh, It would be a shameful thing, I think, to say, oh, thanks for giving me my share of the farm, and then to promptly sell it, to cash out and say, going to Vegas, see ya. And this is sort of this idea. Not only is he saying, I want my share of the land now, but to turn it into cash, he has to, to, to let a stranger start to work his family's land. Talk about shameful. The story goes on. Verse 14. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. Could you imagine that? Hey, ooh, ooh, that looks kind of good. Could I have some? No. This is uh, Jesus telling the story in, in some ways with a bit of hyperbole to say, look, Things have gone absolutely the worst that they possibly could have. Here's this guy. He, he did the most shameful, dishonoring thing. It was a I wish you were dead kind of moment. And then he goes and he squanders this inheritance. And now he's living with pigs. Even the little that we know about Jewish culture, we can think about the, the, the fact that anything related to pigs would have been this uh, desecrating sort of thing. In fact, about 150 years before Jesus, there was this major moment in the temple where a pig is slaughtered and the Jews are sort of being force-fed pork and the ones that refused were killed. So there's this major 
pig incident that was fresh in everyone's memory. It's, what, it's the event that precipitates the Maccabean revolt and all of that. So here Jesus is saying, look, here's this guy. Things have gotten so bad. He finds himself not only feeding pigs, but wanting to eat, not pigs, but pig food. This is Jesus' way of saying, yeah, that's, that's really, uh, things are low. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I am starving to death? I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him hugged him and kissed him. And then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The very speech he's rehearsed. And I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, interrupting his prepared speech, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. We're going to read more in this story, but before we start to think about it, and it's, it, it's very easy for us. We're used to hearing this story and finding ourselves in it, and we're going to do that in a moment. But before we do that, I want us to just kind of stop for a moment and say, how, how might this have resonated to Jesus' hearers? The ones that Jesus was talking to, how would this have had resonances for them? Where would this have, what chords would this have sort of struck inside them? In fact, there are many resonances with the Israel story, so to speak, that, and this prodigal son story that Jesus is telling. Think of it uh, with me, would you? Israel is this Son, in fact, throughout the Old Testament, there's this phrase that, that is said that God says, look, Israel is my firstborn, he's my son. And in this instance, you know, the prodigal son is not the firstborn, but he's the son of an heir. And because of his own sinful decisions, he has lost his father's land. Everyone knew Israel's story that, look, this is what's happened to us. This is our story. We've been unfaithful to Yahweh. We've been disobedient. We've been idolaters. We've squandered our resources worshiping other gods. In fact, many of the, much of the language in the prophet books is this picture of Israel as this philandering sort of adulterous uh, wife. And, 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 and there's this image of, look, you, you wasted this. You just sort of poured out your love and your worship to all these other gods. And it was because of that that God finally says, okay, this land, you're not going to live here anymore. Out. And they get taken, and I, talk, I find a way to mention, weave this in to so many sermons, and, I, and it's not intentional, but this backdrop of exile in Israel's story is a big, big deal. It was defining, because as much as the promised land meant to them, the, 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 the time of them being kicked out from it, exiled from it, is monumental. This is an epic moment in their history, in their story as, as God's people. And so in 722, the northern kingdom gets taken by the Assyrians and scattered. Somewhere around 587, 586, 585, there's three separate invasions of the Babylonians that take the southern kingdom and take them exile, into exile. Babylonians get overrun by the Persians. The Persians get over, you know, and all, but eventually they get to resettle and they come back to Jerusalem. This is where the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah 
and some of the other smaller prophet books in the Old Testament pick up. But when they're listening to Jesus tell a story of a son who squandered his inheritance and now does not live on his father's land, you have to wonder if they're thinking about their own story. Hey, hey guys, hey, is he, is he talking about us? Are you, you talking to me? Is this it? Furthermore, the language that the father says, he says, look, this is my son. He was dead, but now he is alive. The father says this phrase again later in the story, and we're going to come back to how this phrase has significance for us. But by Jesus' day, there's this language that begins to develop, resurrection. Uh, You remember Ezekiel's really bizarre vision of dry bones coming together and getting flesh, and it's like this zombie kind of vision, except it's the reverse of zombie because... It's like dead bones coming to life, and it's like a good thing. They become an army. Resurrection had become this metaphor for homecoming. By the time you get to the first century when Jesus is there, among some of the the religious leaders of the day, there was this sense that, okay, look, when we hear the words resurrection, when we hear about someone coming back from the dead, that is synonymous to us of finally being back in the land, of homecoming, coming back home. Now, they were living in the land, but they were living under oppression by Rome and all this stuff. And so now Jesus is saying, okay, look, the father says to the son, you were dead, but you're now alive. In a very real way, Jesus is saying to his people, look, there is a homecoming. There is a resurrection, a a, a very spiritual one that's beginning. But it's not just about being here. It's about being home, coming to me, repenting. So there's major resonances for Israel's story, and and we kind of need to begin there before we sort of go to us. Okay, Luke 15, verse 25. Story goes on. Now his older son was in the field, and coming in from the field, he, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? Dad doesn't normally party. And the servant replied, your brother has arrived. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he, has re- he received his son back safe and sound. And then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. If you're into underlining in your Bible, this may be one of the sentences you may not have underlined yet, but underline the phrase, came out. The father came out and begged him. He answered his father, look, I've served you all these years and I never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Dad, remember last Friday night I was asking for the car. But when this son of yours returned after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And then his father said, son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We know this parable as the parable of the prodigal son, but of course these titles, these phrases that divide up our chapters are stuff that was added much, much later and it's not necessarily, it's not at all part of uh, the the canon. And, And so if you were just listening to this story and you were reading all of Luke 15, and if you weren't conditioned to focus automatically on this younger son, you may really end up paying more attention to the older son 
Because this is where the story ends. Now, everybody knows when you're telling a good story, you save the punchline for the middle? No, the end. And there's something about the way Jesus is building up this sermon. In fact, it's the third of three stories just like it. Think with me for a moment of what the other two stories are. What's the first lost thing in Luke 15? Lost sheep. Out of, let's do a little simple math here, out of the sheep that were lost, what percentage of them was lost? 1%. 1 out of 100. And what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and goes after the 1. There's a pattern Jesus is developing in the storytelling that's saying, okay, look, there's 1 out of 100, and then the shepherd goes after the 1. If you were listening to Jesus' words, and he tells these series of parables in response to an accusation against Jesus for hanging out with sinners. And so Jesus, you know, says, yeah, that's what you think? Let me tell you a story. And he tells him three stories. If you were listening to these, to these stories, you might first think, oh, well, one out of 99. Well, whatever, I'm in the 99. I've got a 99% chance of not being lost. Odds are pretty good that I'm not the lost guy Jesus is talking about. Then Jesus goes to parable number two, and he's, it's about what? A coin. She says, this woman, she has ten coins and one's lost. She searches the whole house. For this one. What's our simple math percentage here? It's, it's now one out of ten. This is ten percent. Like, okay. Okay, so now you have a, still, your odds are still pretty good. You've got a 90% chance that you're not in the category of the lost, right? And so if you're listening to this story and you're feeling pretty good about yourself, like the Pharisees may have been, you're saying, okay, well, um, Cool story, Jesus, but yeah, I'm, like not, I'm not the one lost coin. I'm one of the nine. I'm in the 90% here. I'm good. And then Jesus goes on and he tells a story about two sons. Now all of a sudden, you're listening and you're halfway through and you hear about this son who squanders the, the father's inheritance. And now you're thinking, okay, okay, one out of two, that's what percent? 50%. So all of it, this is a steep curve now in this uh, rise of my odds of being lost. My odds were pretty good when I was 99%. Nah, I'm probably not in that. 90%. Okay, 50%. One out of two people are lost. In effect. But what is it that the shepherd does for the one lost sheep? He leaves them and goes looking, right? The woman who loses the coin she sets aside the nine, searches the house for the one. When the younger son leaves the house, does the father go after him? He doesn't. Now, if we're looking for a thread here, we're saying, well, okay, Jesus, that, that, you, know, you told the other two stories have the person going out and looking. But you didn't go, the father doesn't go looking for the product. He, he does leave the house to run and meet him when he's already coming home. But when the older brother leaves the party, what does the father do? He goes out. Who does the father leave the house to go looking for? The older son. Where do you think the sting is in this parable that Jesus is telling him? It's in the older brother. In a way, Jesus is saying, let's start with, you think one out of 100 people are lost? Yeah, sure, but that's not me. We're good, we're good Jews. We're, you know, we're obedient. Do you think one out of ten are lost? Yeah, probably. But, you know, again, we're still pretty good, you know. Do you think one out of two? Probably. But, again, you know, we're the obedient son. 
How about if I told you that both sons were lost? What if it's not one out of two? What if it's two out of two? In reality, this is a parable about the lost sons. This is a parable about two sons who are both lost. And the one who thinks he's not lost is actually the one that the father leaves the house to go after. That's fascinating. If you were listening to this in Jesus' day and you were familiar again with the words that said, Israel is my firstborn, you're sort of thinking, yes, we are the big brother. We're the ones. We're the first. We're the best. And certainly we are not lost. Those Gentile sinners are lost. Those Jews who act like Gentile sinners are lost. But not us. And Jesus is saying, yes, you. Not just them, but also you. You have to, you have to understand that parables are designed to have this incredible zinger at the end. It's this nice story. And you're like, wow, what a great story. Oh, he leaves the 99. Goes, wow. Wait, wait, what? That's, that's kind of the feeling you're supposed to have. So by the end of this string of three parables, you're listening. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. What, what? He leaves the house for the older brother? Are you telling me that we're all in need of rescue? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. But in a very real way, this parable is not about lostness or lost sons as much as it is about a loving God. Part of the other massive shift in thinking that Jesus is doing with this parable is the statement that he's making about God. Here's a father who doesn't rebuke the son for asking for those things. Dad, give me my inheritance. I wish you were dead. Okay, yeah. Here you go. That's what you want. That's what you insist on. Have it. This is a father who, when the son returns, runs. Now again, well, what's the big deal? You know, we run. I mean, most of us run for the pleasure of it. That's kind of twisted. I don't know why you do that. You know, like, yeah, I ran 10 miles today. Wow, now I feel great. You know, yeah, don't get that yet. (laughs) This is a deal where everybody's wearing robes. And it's not dignified to run. In fact, the only way to run in a robe is to gather it up, tuck it in, and then run, awkwardly still. (laughs) Hence the reason why it's undignified. A land-owning man does not run toward his son. Now, it's also possible that as the son is running back, or walking back to town, that by good Jewish tradition, the elders of the city should stone him, this son who brought shame on his household. And it could be that the father runs to say, no, 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 put that stone down. He's my son. It could be that what Jesus is trying to show us in this parable is that God is not fundamentally taskmaster. He's a loving father. That God in his essence is not this tyrant or taskmaster, but he is this gracious father. 
It's difficult when we talk about this because we believe that God's will is sovereign. We believe He's above. But God is not, as Christians, we don't believe that God is defined by just an absolute will. There are other religions that have a vision of a God who is, at His essence, its absolute will. The will may be irrational, the will may be unloving, but that God is 100% will. And so he's defined by will. And so whatever he wills, we just submit. There are religions that have a view of God like that. Remarkably unique vision that Jesus offers is that, yes, God is sovereign, but he is fundamentally love. He isn't a giant will in the sky. He's a father who runs. When we think about this story and we think about ourselves, and we think, How, where, where am I in this? Who am I in this? How do we participate in this parable? How do we enter in? Okay, we've got this big story now set up. We've seen how Israel enters the story. How do we enter it? Let's pretend this is a big stage play, and we've been invited to sort of, okay, this is your scene. You're in now. Wait, wait, wait. Which character am I? We could be either son. And either son would show us that things are worse off than we thought. In a very real way, our participation in this text begins by admitting that we are more helpless than we imagined, than we thought. More helpless than we thought. When the father says, look, this is my son who was dead and he's now alive. It's very consistent with how the Bible actually talks about sin. When you and I think about sin, we think of good versus bad, don't we? We think of, yeah, well, I was kind of good, he was kind of bad, and this was kind of dumb. You know. But the language that the Bible uses for sin is much more severe than good or bad, because good or bad has degrees, doesn't it? It's like, well, how good? Well, this good. How bad? Well, this bad. Well, not that bad, but this bad, right? Good and bad language has, is a language of degrees. But the Bible's language for sin is not good or bad. Do you know what the Bible's language for sin is? Death. Genesis 3, eat of this fruit and you will surely die. And the wages of sin is death. That you believe in, believe in God's only Son and you will not perish, die. Revelation, the cast in the lake of fire, which is the second death, death, death. Death has no degrees. You cannot be more dead or less dead. You, cannot, you, you can be more bad or less bad, but you cannot be more dead than dead. There's no degrees. When the Bible describes our condition before God, it doesn't use the language of degrees to say, well, you're kind of bad, well, you're not so bad, well, you're okay. You were the one who went away and squandered everything. You're the son that stayed home and you're pretty good. Forget this, the continuum of goodness and badness. You're dead. That's a problem. <laughs> That's a problem. There's, there's, there's no self-effort here. There's nothing you can do to say, yeah, but I could still do this. No, 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 no. No, before God, without Christ, we are not alive. 
And Jesus is here with the story of the father. He says, okay, look, now my son who was dead is now alive. This is the very language Paul picks up in Ephesians where he says, look, you were once dead in your sins, but you've now come alive. The question is not how bad have you been. The question is, are you dead or are you alive? Conversely, the question is not how good have you been this week? Check the box. You've been pretty good this week? Take communion. No. It's not a question of how good or how bad. It's are you still dead in your sins without Christ or have you been made alive in Jesus? See, we are more helpless than we thought. In some ways, this is good news because this kind of puts us all on the same sort of level ground here. It says, okay, well, look, you could be this, quote-unquote, messed up, and the truth is, it doesn't, before God, you're just as dead as the person who's this messed up. Does that make sense? On the other hand, it could be very insulting to our pride. <laughs> what do you mean I'm helpless? I'd rather not use those words, Glenn. I've been pretty good. And you realize that in this very story, Younger son who leaves and wastes the inheritance. Older brother who pouts and leaves the party. Both sons are lost. There's something, there's no room for saying that, no, well, I'm just, you know, I'm better. You know. Here's a little uh, qualifying disclaimer, okay? I'm not saying that all sins are equal. Listen closely. All sins are not equally destructive to you. And all sins are not equally destructive to the community of God. One of the great lies is that we've told ourselves that, well, I mean, getting angry is just as big of a sin as having adultery, having an affair. In the sense of before God, that's true. They both, without Christ, qualify you for deadness. But you know what I've seen happen as we've over the last 20 years, 30 years started to tell people, no, I'm just as, it's just as bad, it's just as bad, is then we've sort of forgotten that sins are destructive in different degrees. That a sin of adultery is, is destructive in a far deeper way than the sin of something else. I mean, you can fill, fill in the bank, blank. What I'm asking you to do is not to, to ignore and to pretend that all sins are equal before each other or even before ourselves. One of the great lies to young people is to say that sin, sins are not equally destructive. And so a young man in his 20s or in his teenagers develops a, a pornography addiction that, 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 that becomes addictive because nobody's told him that all sins are not equal in their destruction to you. That actually this sin is going to destroy some things for your future. I think we should tell people that. Because instead we say, well, it's all equal, so it's okay. Hey, man, you struggled with that this week. I'm so sorry. I broke my fast this week, so we're all sinners. Yes, and yet, sins are different, destructive in different ways. And there needs to be a bit of this open eyes that says, there are certain choices that have implications in you and for the community that are very different. Now, before our Father, this relationship, they all count as deadness. I know it sounds like I'm saying two things, but I'm just 
trying to make you not run away with one side, okay? Forgive the rabbit trail. <laughs> you good? But the story doesn't leave us with saying we are more helpless than we thought. The story leaves us with this realization that we are more loved than we imagined. That you're more loved than you imagined. That it's far better than you could have dreamed. That there's a Father who cares, who redeems. There's a Son who's coming home with no robe, and the Father puts on a brand new one. There's a son who's coming home with no authority, no possessions, no inheritance, and the father gives him his very ring and says, here, you're still an heir. You're still mine. There's a son who's coming home with feet that are bruised and battered, and the father who says, we'll get you some sandals. You don't have to live with those wounds defining you. You don't have to live with that condition as permanent. All is not lost. It's not over. We're more loved than we imagined. When we think about this tonight, the question may be, who are you? Which son are you? Are you the one that's saying, you know what, I, boy, I, I blew it. Or are you the one that says, I'm pretty good? In a beautifully poetic way, there was another son who left his father's house and spent all of his resources on a sinful group of people. And when he comes home, he wants to bring loads of others with him. Jesus is in this story in a way, too. So we may see ourselves in this, but truly we've got to come to see Jesus in it. Because you know what begins to happen? When you come home to the Father, whether you're the son that's run away, the person that's gone and squandered, or whether you're the person that just left to pout, when you come home to the Father, he does something with your relationships with one another. The elder son says to the father, he says, look, this son of yours wasted your inheritance. And the father says, this brother of yours. It's not enough to make coming home a private, personal, individual when you come home to the father, he says, okay, let me introduce you to, to your siblings. It's this guy. It's that woman. It's this couple. It's that family. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That daughter of yours, Lord, is really... Uh, do you mean that sister of yours? Uh, yeah, I guess. But Lord, I have been in church and I have been praying, and, I, and this guy, this so-called son of yours, oh, wait, 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 do you mean this brother of yours? Because homecoming is not just between you and your dad. It's not. I'm sorry for the years that the church has lied to you by saying, this is just between you and God. It's not. 
It's between you and God and everyone else who's living in the house. And so the Father makes you look around and say, that guy, your brother. That woman, your sister. Get used to it. We're all going to eat together. Coming home to the Father means seeing your brother, seeing your sister. Probably if we're going to be a community of people that live this out, some of us will have to sort of get beyond what we're comfortable with. Well, this is not my tribe. You know what? If you're in Jesus and he's in Jesus, this is your tribe. I, yeah, I know, but you know, it's just not me and my flavor, you know. So I kind of like the, yeah, well, you want to be in the house? Come home. Come home and then look around. See who else is here. Because our father always makes us see our brother and our sister and everyone. This, I think, is what Henry Nouwen meant when he was writing. Do we have the picture of the painting? Yeah, this painting, this is Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal son, and and no doubt influenced by European imagination. (laughs) But moving, nonetheless, Nouwen was for years a professor at Harvard and was in charge of training Catholic priests and eventually resigned that position and went to serve as a chaplain to the handicapped community outside Toronto. But in one of his sabbatical leaves, he he traveled to see this painting, I believe at a place in Russia. And he sat for a few days just staring at this, just looking at this, and then making reflections, observations. One of the observations was that he, he felt like Rembrandt, the two hands of the father that are on the son, that one is actually a feminine hand and the other is a masculine hand. Uh, representing in God the Father, there is both the maternal and the paternal embrace. It is home in the fullest sense of that. But one of the things Nouwen says toward the end of this brilliant, thin little book is that you may be the prodigal son, You may be the older brother, but we are all called to become like the Father. We are all called to become like the Father. As we pray tonight, with your eyes open and your head up, would you just look at this picture for a bit? We're early, miracle of miracles. Take a couple minutes as Matthew plays and just look at it prayerfully as you've been thinking about this text and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to my heart? Where am I in this? Am I the person that needs to come home and not be ashamed or afraid of the scars or the wounds or the mistakes? Am I the person that's the begrudging, self-righteous, older brother? And better yet, Holy Spirit, what do you need to do in me to make me like the Father? Like the one who embraces. So our Father in heaven, we pray tonight. We confess that we were dead in our sins. 
There's no degrees to deadness. We were gone. We were out of it. Thank you for sending us your son. Thank you that you came. Thank you that you rescued us. Thank you that you're the kind of God that comes running to us in our brokenness, in our woundedness, in our destruction, in the state of destruction of our own sin, Lord. Yet you come running to us. God, we confess that at different moments of our life, we've been like the older brother, thinking that we're good, thinking that we're better, begrudging the joy of a repentant sinner. Father, all of us admit, it doesn't matter who we are in this story, which son we are, we're lost, we're dead without you, Christ. And yet in you, we've come alive. Holy Spirit, would you turn and work inside our hearts? Help us to become like our Father, defined by love and forgiveness. Help us to open our eyes and see our brother and our sister. Make us into one family feasting at your table together. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.